are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up with a new step this evening, step number 21 on unmanly and puerile cowardice. Again, we're on page 163. A few people coming in here. Just let me let them join. Hello, everybody, by the way. Good to see you. Everybody's running late tonight. Okay. So again, page 163, step number 21. If you pursue virtue in a monastery or synobium, you are not likely to be attacked much by cowardice. But the man who spends his time in more solitary places should make every effort to avoid being overcome by that offspring of vainglory, that daughter of unbelief, cowardice. So already interesting right from the beginning that there's something about living the common life where you're supported by others uh, that makes one less vulnerable to this kind of cowardice or fear that he's speaking of. I think when you're supported by others and live in this environment where you know you're going to be taken care of, uh, that this isn't perhaps one of the temptations that would come to you. Whereas if you're on your own and living from day to day on food that you find for yourself, as well as water uh, for yourself, and uh, especially some of those living far out in the, the depths of the desert, uh, if one were to become ill or if wild animals would come around or robbers, that uh, one could be become overwhelmed uh, by uh, a kind of fearfulness, that uh, living in that solitude, I think often we will romanticize it uh, because there's a part of us that at times wants to, wants to escape uh, the sort of the noise of day-to-day -day life and uh, the routine of our day-to-day -day life, but living it as they did uh, in the heart of the desert, uh, uh, could be a very frightening thing. And so it would be something that they would have to fight with, not to give themselves over to it, that he ties it here to being an offspring of vainglory. So um, when there's no one around to see what we are doing or to praise us, to bolster us up, to lift us up, we are left with ourselves and uh, and we can't hide uh, 
the reality from ourselves or put on airs of being courageous uh, I, when we are confronted in that solitude, as I said, with the things that uh, the solitary would be uh, experiencing, uh, it could be overwhelming. Uh, one can easily be overcome by, by fear. And so he goes on to say, cowardice is a childish disposition in an old vainglorious soul. Cowardice is falling away from faith that comes from expecting the unexpected. An interesting uh, idea that expecting the unexpected, that uh, again, when left with one's thoughts and one's anxieties, uh, what begins to run through the mind uh, would be all the things that could happen to me. And again, living in that solitary state, uh, one could be caught up in this kind of thought and worry. Am I going to be able to provide for myself even for a day. And again, what if I became sick or if I was set upon by, by others uh, who would protect me? And, uh, and so it could become something that is a, a controlling kind of passion for the individual, this kind of deep fear of the unknown. It continues, fear is a rehearsing of danger beforehand. Or again, fear is a trembling sensation of the heart, alarmed and troubled by unknown misfortunes. Fear is a loss of assurance. So uh, along the similar line uh, from the, the previous saying that uh, this kind of expecting the unexpected, we begin to rehearse even uh, the, the danger beforehand. And so begin to play out in our minds all the different things that could uh, happen to us, all the possible misfortunes that we might face in our day-to-day -day life. So st stepping out uh, to embrace the will of God in our life. And I think when we think about this for our own life, uh, if we're not living the solitary life, of course, uh, that we still can be overcome by this, that we can... Uh, be driven, again, more by our fears and our anxieties about the own non unknown realities of, of life, what's going to happen to us. And when we have that being fed, uh, as we do, I think, constantly on a day-to-day -day basis by the, the media, the news, everything we see going around the world, uh, such things could really over overcome us. And we can be begin to re uh, rehearse all different kinds of scenarios about what could happen to ourselves, to our, our country, uh, to the church that we belong to, anything along those lines. But more personally, I think we can begin to uh, fear about what, what embracing the faith and embracing it fully, holding nothing back from God would mean for us. What would my life become? And uh, even if we're not conscious of this, I think we could engage in this kind of rehearsing of that danger in our mind. And uh, so being troubled by unknown misfortunes. Uh, and so it's interesting, I've talked a lot about this within these groups about Freud never being able to put his finger on the source of anxiety, that other things like depression, uh, and uh, certain other kinds of uh, psychological illnesses that he could find some 
uh, origin for it, but anxiety seemed to be ubiquitous. Everybody seems to struggle with it. And so to tie it down to a specific thing was very difficult. And uh, but when we look to the fathers, I think for them, it was very clear that it was tied to sin and one of the fruits of sin, which is this experience of the absence of God, that when our faith begins to weaken, uh, we can be subject to all kinds of, of temptations, of course. And one of those temptations would be to fear for our, our own welfare and our well-being, that there will be something that comes to, that will throw us into crisis or bring about upheaval and we will find ourselves in want. And part of this is losing sight again that God is the, the, uh, the governor of our lives, that he is the Lord of love, that he holds us and sustains us in being and has redeemed us. And what is it that we would fear? What is it that we, we could possibly fear knowing that we are constantly under his gaze, that he knows every hair on our head, and that we hold within us the very promise of that eternal life through what we receive in the Eucharist and the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, that we have received. And so uh, when we our faith begins to falter or our hope, when we lose uh, that's trust in his providence and his promises. Uh, we can become troubled by misfortunes, he says, and uh, lose our assurance. And uh, if we jump back a little bit, he describes it as the childish disposition in an old vainglorious soul. So it's, you know, little children, of course, could be fearful uh, of the dark and things such as that. But uh, uh, he describes it as a kind of childish disposition in the old, that we can falter in our faith and lose sight of uh, the promises uh, of, of God to us, and so begin to falter. And we find ourselves surprisingly being overcome by anxiety that seems at times to us to be childish, uh, where we want to es escape uh, the realities around us, and even when there's no real threat to us, again, it's unknown. We expect the unexpected. Something terrible could happen if I step out and engage in my life fully. And uh, again, for a person who's living the solitary life in John's mind, uh, that a fall into this could be devastating that a person could be paralyzed in the spiritual life without having the assurance of others around them or the witness of others around them. Uh, that, that feeling of, of confidence that we receive in numbers, that when one is alone with God, uh, one has to trust in him fully, that he's going to, to provide for us. And again, I think even when we do live in the world, we're often overcome by this. And because part of the reason is I think we, we do struggle with a kind of isolation that is innate to us, this kind of experience of being alone, even when we are around others. And again, I think this is rooted in our living in a fallen world. 
and we experience sin in our own life, and it darkens the eye of the heart that makes us lose sight of God, but I think also lose sight uh, of others. We, we feel uh, in our, the difficult moments of our life, our trials, or, or just in dealing with life's realities in general, uh, a kind of loneliness that, that uh, leaves us feeling a, a kind of internal absence as well, that, that God has, has left us. And uh, we've talked before about COVID in particular, that uh, a good 30 million individuals experience it in complete isolation uh, and uh, how devastating that could be. And I think the, the rise of depression and anxiety that took place uh, throughout the pandemic, I think it, this experience that is being described here for us could easily be magnified by something like this that we are faced with because if we think about it we were faced with the unknown uh, about how bad the the virus was uh what we really needed to do to protect ourselves even those within the church i think if we look at how the church responded to it and i think recently even cardinal dolan said you know maybe we need to go back and even repent in some ways uh, where perhaps we lost faith in the midst of this crisis, this trial, and uh, and one you know one might criticize saying you know too little, too late, but I, I think he's right. You know I think uh, we don't necessarily have to see that there's anything ingenuine about that. That I think uh, most of us probably were overcome at one point or another, and uh, by what might happen to us. And, uh, and so what John is talking about here, I think is important for us to see. So I, I wouldn't want to treat it in a superficial way. And I think it's important that we do see it as tied to sin in particular, and a kind of vainglory, a self-focus, not just in thinking about how great we are, but a kind of self-focus in thinking, well, I'm so vulnerable that God will not, nothing in this world will protect me, not even, not even God. And uh, that, that betrays a kind of lack of faith in us at times. And so this is more of a, a, a struggle uh, than perhaps we realize. And, you know, coming from a scaredy cat, uh, I, I agree with everything that John says, you know, going to school wasn't the easiest thing for me, uh, for pretty much all the way through college, but certainly in the oldie, early years, uh, my dad used to have to stand at the for front door to force me out with the strap saying, you know, get, to, get on that bus. <laughs> so uh, I think that follows us, you know, into adulthood. And the form and the shape of it changes, you know, it's not necessarily social fears or anxieties, but it's something rooted much more deeply within us. Any comments before we go on here? A uh, few, few here. Let me just pause for a moment. Oh, quite a few, actually. And number two, is he saying, Laura Lee asked, that this old soul should know better than I give given to cowardice. Well, 
I think he wants to make the point that, you know, certainly an old soul, one who is exercised in the practice of the faith and the ascetic life, and certainly one who has gone through the training ground of the synobium and has entered into the solitary life. Typically, it would be one who's very experienced uh, in the spiritual battle. And But what he's saying here is that these old souls can become subject to this kind of childish fear that uh, the struggle with vainglory shifts. Uh, prior to this, it could be our being caught up in our own virtue. Like the enemy, the enemy, the demons rejoice when a person grows in virtues because virtue, because then they could have others point that virtue out to them or praise them. And so a person could think that they are doing great. But when they are isolated and alone in the desert, that self-focus that is true of vainglory can be turned into fear that all of a sudden they begin fearing that they will lose what is most essential uh, to, to their life as a whole. And, um, and so I don't, again, I don't think it's limited to old souls, but I think what John is pointing out here is that even the most experienced uh, in the ascetic life can be subject to it. And that the subtleties of vainglory that we've been talking about uh, can work on us in a multitude of ways. Uh, Eric writes, fear is a lack of trust in God. Yes, I think that's part of what he's communicating here, that we lose our assurance, our trust in him. Fear arises when we read a situation as a threat, while boldness arises when we read a situation as a challenge. With Christ, maybe we should see all situation as challenges which we can face with him. Yeah, you know, I think that's true that for a Christian, and we hear a lot of, you know, of elders from old as well as more recent, uh, recent times saying that we, above all things, we should not fear anything. We should not have anxiety. That one of the things that bears witness to our faith is that we fear nothing within this world. Uh, that we would be anxious about it. Any, we wouldn't be anxious about anything. In fact, we are commanded not to be anxious a number of times within the scriptures, which I always find to be a very powerful thing, uh, telling us that uh, we should see ourselves as in such deep communion with the Lord that we would f fear nothing of what the world would throw at us. It doesn't mean we would, don't suffer and experience uh, on a natural level, the kind of anxiety that might even go along with that, you know, with a deep, with a great sickness and having to undergo, for example, medical procedures uh, and things such as that. But even in the face of that, one can endure those things with this greater trust in God and not be overcome by it or paralyzed by it. Because, you know, it can blind us to such an extent that if we, we lose hope, then that our identity becomes formed and shaped by fear. Or, and we become tossed around by the things of the world rather than guide, guided and directed by the spirit.
Uh, Cindy, pray for me today. I lost my wallet. Say so, yes, I'm very anxious. I understand that very well. Uh, why are we even Catholics so afraid of dying? I do not understand. Uh, right, you know, I think there is, the, you know, in the dissolution that takes place at death, that uh, Climacus, in fact, at, at one point earlier in the text, makes this distinction between a kind of fear that is natural to the human condition and the, what we experience in and through the fall and the consequence of that death. So Christ himself sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And, uh, but he, John makes this distinction between this kind of fear and terror, which loses sight uh, of God, that one is overwhelmed by that reality uh, and so loses, loses faith in the face of it. Whereas Christ is able to embrace the Father's will, even as he says, Father, you know, if it be your will, let this cup pass me by. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That he's still able to make this profound expression of faith there in the garden, but also from the cross, even while he's experiencing the pain of it. And for us, I think the the weight of you know that that kind of natural fear uh we, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around it given what was laid upon him you know the sin of the world the consequence of all that sin uh but i think it, we are given an insight into it through the sweating blood in the garden uh david swiderski writes it's interesting i lived and traveled in very insecure areas with lots of kidnappings, random shootings, killings, widespread stealing where your car is often going uh, in Mexico, uh, Colombia, Brazil. And I found people of amazing faith here where there's comfort and more loneliness, anxiety seems widespread. That's an interesting thing. Uh, I haven't traveled widely, but I've been to some places that, like you described and they're often in, in the face of uh, being even the minority in regards to faith, uh, uh, that the depth of that faith is extraordinary. Uh, Egypt uh, have, have in mind that uh, the cops have this extraordinary faith in the, the face of constant danger there. And, uh, and we saw it firsthand and it's a humbling kind, kind of thing. And part of it is that I, I think there is this loss of asceticism that, you know, life humbles individuals in the countries that you describe and who endure that. And in being humbled by it, uh, then cling to God and know the strength that comes through that. Whereas when we have everything that is provided for us, uh, we can easily lose sight of God and we begin to cling to those things as though they are a source of security for us. And uh, where they could be lost in a moment. Whereas the, you know, those living in those countries already know that and perhaps have experienced it with their own family members. Uh, you know, but, you know, we have our, you know, pension accounts and all those kind of things. And, uh, but, you know, in a moment's time, 
all of those things could be lost to us and we could find ourselves in a world of hurt as well as if something unexpected happened on an international level, war, for example. Uh, and, uh, and this is where I think a writing like John's sort of compels us to look into our heart and ask ourselves, how do we, you know, what do we see going on there? And I think we begin to understand as well why they put forward the remembrance of death uh, as being so important in the spiritual battle, that the brevity of our life, of constantly holding that before our eyes, that it uh, again compels us to hold on to that which promises life, that it makes us let go of the illusion that we so often hold on to, that we are protected and safe from all of these things. Whereas if we do have a deep faith, we should be able to, to walk unencumbered. And it's an interesting thing. In the next page, John tells us that, you know, you should be able to walk through cemeteries uh, and, you know, anywhere where one might fear to tread uh, without any fear or anxiety. Uh, in order to free oneself from this. Number four, a proud soul is a slave of cowardice. It vainly trusts in itself and is afraid of any sound or shadow of preachers. So here back, he draws us back again to vanity. The focus turns in on oneself and trusting oneself instead of God. And uh, immediately our knees are going to buckle. Uh, you know, Peter is sort of a good example of this. You know, there was such a strength in him on one level. I will never betray you, no matter what. And then, you know, not long after that, he does exactly, exactly that. In fact, denies him three times when his own life is put on, you know, put on the line. And, uh, and so we can become afraid of the sound and shadow of other creatures and even our own shadow at times. We can jump when we, our shadow catches us, uh, you know, we catch our shadow out of the side of our eye. Uh, that's how bad it can be at times. Those who mourn and those who are insensitive are not subject to fear, but the cowardly often have become deranged. And this is natural. For the Lord rightly forsakes the proud that the rest of us may learn not to be puffed up. So the insensitive uh, are not subject to, to fear uh, and those who mourn. So those who mourn, those who acknowledge their sin and the weight and the depth of it, turn to God. And in their turning to God in repentance, know the comfort and consolation of his grace and strength. The insensitive who has turned away from God altogether uh, can be free from fear, but only in the sense that they are so completely absorbed in, in, in themselves and doing as they will. So you might find somebody who's uh, a criminal who might not be uh, afraid of anything. Uh, certainly not fear, fearful of God or for the loss of his salvation, but not fearful of other individuals. Uh, one great example of this is uh, uh, Moses, St. Moses the Ethiopian. You know, he was uh, a murderer. 
criminal and uh, he had set himself to steal with, with sort of this gang of men that he had, uh, was running with, if you will, at the time, uh, I believe to steal the flock of an individual and uh, the, took the flock on the other side of the river, or the other side of the Nile. And Moses was so angry, he puts a knife in his mouth and he swims across these crocodile infested waters uh, in order to kill this individual. And uh, he's thwarted in that. But he had this kind of courage of the insensitive that in order to gain what he wanted in this world, you know, he wasn't going to let anyone get, get it in his way. Uh, eventually, that would, would become a courage that was tied to faith and the ascetic life. But in, uh, before his conversion, is the perfect example of the insensitive. Uh, but God, John goes on to say the cowardly often become deranged, that this fear of the things of this world can le lead a person to a kind of insanity, uh, a state of being so overwhelmed uh, that uh, on a spiritual level, level uh, obsessed or, or, or oppressed by it or even possessed by it uh, or psychologically uh, so overwhelmed by it that they uh, perhaps move into a, a psychotic state. Uh, and so it's no small thing uh, to be overcome by in one's, one's life. For the Lord rightly forsakes the proud and the rest of us may learn not to be puffed up by it. So sometimes we see this uh, happen within our world and within individuals, and that the natural course of their movement through life and how they engage in life, and often in the sense of this absence of, uh, the, of the belief in God or presence of God, uh, can, uh, the, the things could you know, turn very quickly where a person is brought to that state. And uh, it's not to bring, you know, it's not to give rise to scorn within our heart, but it is to awaken us to the vulnerability that we have as human beings and the illusion that we can have of our own strength and how quickly that illusion can break down on multiple levels, spiritually and psychologically for us. Okay, number five, I'm sorry, that was number five. Number six, although all cowardly people are vainglorious, yet not all who are unafraid are humble, since even robbers and grave plunderers may be without fear. And so this you know, goes back to that example of uh, St. Moses, the Ethiopian, that prior to his conversion, he was exactly this, you know, he was unafraid of, of anything. Uh, not that it was a godly fearlessness, though. Do not hesitate, he goes on to say, to go late at night to those places where you usually feel afraid. But if you yield only a little to such weakness, then this childish and ridiculous infirmity will grow old with you. As you go on your way, arm yourself with prayer. 
And when you reach the place, stretch out your hands, flog your enemies with the name of Jesus, and there is no stronger weapon in heaven or earth. When you get rid of the disease of fear, praise him who has delivered you. If you continue to be thankful, he will protect you forever. So an interesting uh, and powerful a couple uh, or a paragraph, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, that we are given here that we are not to fear the places even that we typically would fear going to. That, uh, and there might even be in our own minds good reason for that existing. Uh, and yet we are not to be guided simply by our own judgment or, or reason in our experience of life or the experience of the realities around us, the circumstances around us. And this doesn't necessarily mean that we become foolhardy, uh, but it does mean that we are to be living our lives on another level in the sense, again, that we understand ourselves as protected by God, that even if we were to lose our life within this world, that we still are in the hands of God. And in reality, nothing can touch us in the sense of destroying us, that whatever could be taken from us in this world is, will be restored to us a hundredfold. And yet we can get to that state uh, that we are, are really uh, thrown into this kind of anxiety when we, we find ourselves in circumstances and situations uh, where it seems dangerous to us. And we can be looking over our shoulders or thinking that we need to arm ourselves or simply get out of there as quickly as, as we can. Uh, my own neighborhood might be, <laughs> sorry, Lori, uh, you live here too, but I think you probably understand that, you know, our own neighbor neighborhood can seem like that for us, for us, you know, it, uh, from all appearances, it can, it seems like a rough place, but we, in our lack of faith, I think can magnify, you know, this whole idea of expecting the unexpected immediately we conjure up all the things that could possibly happen to us. And that fear can sort of multiply within the human heart. And so we begin to have this kind of trepidation about going out of, out of the house. And again, constantly looking over our shoulders. Uh, I had an interesting experience that was sort of an eye opener. Uh, a friend was visiting and we, we went someplace and a bag was left outside of the building uh, with some valuables in it. And when we came back, we drove up to the building and said, what is that sitting out there? And it's like, oh my goodness, that's my, you know, my bag with computer and everything else in it. And we had been gone for six probably six hours. And I think our expectation, you know, in our mind is that, that there was something miraculous about that, that in this neighborhood, that that could happen, that it would still be there. And, you know, 
I don't want to make too much of this because somebody could have walked by and just picked it up and walked away with it, of course. But uh, the point I'm getting at is that we can take certain realities and circumstances about where we are and magnify them in our mind that we, again, we begin to expect the worst, the worst, and that can be paralyzing to us when we, we give ourselves over to that fully. And so John is almost saying that, um, you know, I think modern psychologists might say that it's some, sort of a counterphobic move, uh, but he's saying you should, you should go out, let go of this ridiculous infirmity, uh, go, your, go your way and arm yourself with, with prayer and, uh, and to flog the enemies with the name of Jesus, to, to rid yourself uh, of this, this kind of natural fear. And, you know, if we're staying locked up in our home constantly, and if we are protecting ourselves of all possible threats, you know, no even if that's true, we're probably going to become much more anxious because uh, our imagination begins to take over and fill in the gaps for us, if you will. So John is saying, you know, if the greatest reality in your life is God and you're living in, in, the, in that reality and you're constantly calling upon the name of Jesus, uh, that this should rid the heart of all fear. And again, it's not that we will never be set upon or that we will never experience hardship in, in this life, but it, sh it should rid us of that kind of fear that uh, again, makes everyone a potential enemy or you know, makes us fearful of, uh, to the extent that we no longer become witnesses to the faith and are very, very bearing. So you, you see what John is doing here. You know, he's, he's not denying the fact that we, we could come find ourselves, you know, set upon by the evils of this world. But faith should be such that we, we live in the peace, again, the invincible peace of the kingdom, that even in the face of all those things, of those potentialities, whether it be from illness or violence or whatever it might be, that nothing can pull us out of, out of that peace of Christ. And that's an extraordinary gift, a precious gift that John is telling us in no uncertain terms that we are to protect and deepen and strengthen over the course of time. If we give ourselves over to that fear and anxiety, then we are, we are losing something uh, that he desires to give us. Okay, there are a couple of comments here I want to respond to. Uh, how did Moses come to Christ? Uh, the, I think he encounters the, the monks at some point and who weren't afraid of him. And I think, but I, I don't want to just make up the story in my mind. I'm going to have to go back and read, it, read about it. Maybe somebody else can fill it in here, but it's not coming to mind. Uh, Laura Lee writes, I love that. Flog your enemies with the name of Jesus. I'm going to remember that. 
Yeah, the name of Jesus, you know, the, the name that the God himself gives to his son has a kind of power in and of itself. The fathers almost describe it in sacramental terms that to call upon the name of the Lord, this name, you know, which every knee shall bow, uh, flogs the enemy. So whether it's our temptation to a particular sin or to anxiety, it has that effect. And so if we're constantly uh, calling upon the Lord, if this is what's within our hearts, then what we should find ourselves, uh, should find happening in our lives is being drawn deeper and deeper into this peace of Christ. Lord, Lori Hatala writes, I think God gave me enough sense not to purposely put myself in a harmful situation uh, to avoid all but knowing what to stay away from. Right, that... Uh, Again, we're not to be foolhard, you know, where we we thrust ourselves into a situation where we do not, uh, we lose a sense of gratitude for what God has given us. Uh, but uh, I think what is being spoken of here is that we do not cling to that as if it is the, the greatest thing that God has given to us. Uh, you know, that Paul tells us that, you know, he came to count all things within this world as refuse in comparison to knowing the love of, of Christ Jesus. That there is something incomparable about that. And sometimes our fear and our anxiety reveals our lack of faith in that. That in the love of Christ, nothing can be lost to us. If he is the Lord of life, the Lord of love, then what could we possibly lose that he will not, would not restore? Eric Wonko, uh, chat GPT summarizes his conversion. Uh, is that AI of some sort, chat GPT? Okay, he uh, summarizes his conversion. Uh, once vi a violent bandit sought refuge among the desert monks in Egypt, impressed by their peace and patience, he converted to Christianity, became a monk, and later an abbot, renowned for his deep spirituality and wisdom. He was martyred defending his monastery. Yeah, that's right. It's an interesting story that lived by the sword, died by the sword. And so his monastery was being attacked, and he stays in order that the other monks might escape and offers his own life knowing that he had taken so many lives by by the sword uh but he was this courageous individual it's you know monks the monks had been attacked before and he was so large and so strong that he wrapped a bunch of the, the these robbers up and carried them on his shoulders to the monastery and uh and uh to you know give them to the other monks for their judgment and, you know, they, they let them go, but they all convert in the process and become uh, Moses' disciples, if you, if you will. He's a fascinating figure, a, a, great, uh, a great saint. Lord Lee, I believe I read that he had about 70 monks under his care by the time he died. Yes, the, again, a, a very large number of others become monks because of him. Perhaps Ignatius Agare Contra can help us deal with fear, always trusting in Christ. Yes, you know, this 
always trusting. And I think this is sort of what John put forward in the first couple paragraphs here, no, not to lose our assurance. And hope, I think, is often one of the, the neglected virtues. You know, this trusting in the promises of Christ that I will never abandon you. And so come what may, uh, our, our hope, even when we can't see in faith where God is leading us, our hope should allow us to take hold of what has been promised to us in, in the Lord, that we are able to make our way forward, even in the darkest of nights. Okay. Number eight. Just as it is impossible to satisfy the stomach in one bout, so also it is impossible to overcome fear instantly. It will yield more quickly in proportion as you mourn, but to the extent that our mourning fails, we continue to be cowards. So th this is the thing about contrition or compunction that we find in the fathers, that the more that we mourn over our sin and the more that we turn toward God in repentance, uh, the deeper we are drawn into that relationship. And the more deeply we are drawn into it, again, the, the, our other virtues become perfected, including this fearlessness, this deep peace of, of the kingdom. And so for the father's mourning wasn't uh, just this deep sorrow that was an end in itself for the sin committed, but it was something that, that draws us back into that relationship with God. So it's sorrowful joy that they speak of, not just sorrow uh, of mourning as we often think about it. It's always something that always ends uh, by drawing us back into the, the, the relationship with, with our Lord. And so when we begin to lose that uh, is when we, uh, we continue, he says, to be cowards because we our focus is taken off of God. We are to live in a constant state of repentance. And again, we, I think we have an overly moralistic or maybe even legalistic sense of repentance, where it is really, uh, again, about movement, this movement of turning towards God in, in every way, uh, certainly in the struggle with sin, uh, but also in our striving for virtue and the deepening of our prayer, or even things like fasting and vigil. Uh, it is repentance uh, that drives this, that turns us toward God and allows us to take, the, take these things up, these ascetic practices. Number nine, my hair and my flesh quivered, said Eliphaz, when describing the malice of this demon. Sometimes the soul and sometimes the flesh turns coward first, and the one passes its infirmity on to the other. If this untimely fear does not pass into the soul when the flesh flinches, then deliverance from the disease is at hand. But actual freedom from cowardice comes when we eagerly accept all unexpected events with a contrite heart. So interesting, you know, our... On a physical level, we might be jarred and you know shocked by something and flinch, as he says here. Uh, but if we don't allow that natural reaction to penetrate the soul and, and so take a deeper hold of us, 
we're able to overcome this disease more freely if we cut it off at its roots uh, when we see it emerge within us. Uh, but uh, actual freedom, he says, comes when we uh, accept all unexpected events with a contrite heart. So when we are able to receive these things and again, turn toward God, uh, and are able to acknowledge even that subtle movement of, of fear that emerges in it, whether physical or on a bodily level or within the soul, as a departure of faith or a weakening of faith. And, uh, and so we are ultimately freed when our response to the temptation to fear is met with this contri contrition. Now, again, when we call out the Jesus prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. This is what John is teaching us in the above paragraph, to stretch out the arms and to be calling this out constantly in order that we might know the freedom that comes from entrusting ourselves completely to the Lord. It is not darkness and desolateness of place that give the demons power against us but barrenness of soul. And through God's providence, this sometimes happens in order that we might, may learn by it. So this takes us, it gives us a little bit more clarity. It's not the darkness or the, uh, or the desolateness of the place, which I think is what we think in our minds, you know, that this is a scary environment. Uh, but John isn't willing to allow that to rest there for us. He, he's saying that really the, the source of the cowardice of this is barrenness of soul. If we bear within us, again, uh, Christ, then his strength and his virtue, his courage is going to be our own. And what we, the courage that we see in the saints as well is going to be our own. You know, faith illuminates for us not only the fact that God is with us and that he pours forth his grace, that, but we begin to see on that battlefield all the angels and saints, uh, that we are part of the communion of saints. And, uh, and so we constantly have our guardian angel with us and other angels that are given to us to uh, assist us in this struggle with particular demons that might afflict us. And so, again, faith shows us uh, in this very explicit, explicit way why we should not be fearful. And uh, there's a story later on in the Evergatinos, when we come back to it next week, where uh, it was Moses that was uh, told to look out when he was struggling in the spiritual with the spiritual disciplines, was told to look out one one window uh, on the side of his cell, and he sees out there a whole host of demons, and, that, and then he's told by his elder, "Now look out the other side," and there he sees this you know massive uh, presence of of the angels and saints, far greater than that, that of, of the demons. And from that moment on, 
you know, he's freed of this anxiety or fear that he has about his life or his ability uh, to be able to engage in this spiritual warfare. So that natural courage becomes something supernatural for him, spiritual courage that is revealed to him by, by his elder. And uh, perhaps, again, this is something that we do not speak often enough about, the, the communion of saints. Again, we, I think we think about it in ab abstract terms. And I think this is part of the, the beauty. And we see it in, in Western churches too with stained glass, but in particular in the Eastern churches with the iconography, you're literally surrounded, you know, the entire church, ceiling, walls, the iconostasis uh, is uh, covered with the images of Christ himself, of Our Lady and uh, all the angels and saints. And so in a very concrete way, we are drawn in we, to gaze into this heavenly reality uh, through gazing upon uh, the icons and doing so with the uh, eyes of faith. And, uh, and so we've, we've lost some of these ways, I think, that the mind and the heart are formed in the faith uh, that we really need to take uh, hold of again. You know, we've moved to this kind of minimalism in the way that we think about faith, and that's moved us then to uh, turn it into something that's purely intellectual and notional. And uh, I think people have begun to lose faith in the, the, this, this presence of, of, uh, of God within the sacraments, uh, the real belief, uh, belief in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. You know, part of this is the breakdown of, of catechesis, but also of faith as a whole, that it is only formed over the course of time. Uh, a couple of comments here. Uh, see, Michael, meant to phrase my earlier comment as a question. Can the same be said about fearing for the sake of others? I suppose that it, that can also get out of hand if we do not trust God. Uh, yes, and I, I, I want to stress this again, that there is this on a natural level. And again, we see it in Christ when we are faced with real evil and malice that uh, that we see Christ uh, sweat blood in the, the face of it. And so we aren't, this is not stoicism that is putting, being put forward before us. It's what is being put before us is a depth of faith that frees us from uh, making those things an end in themselves. So much so that we we believe that they can be lost to us and lost to us permanently. And so, you know, one can be fearful of uh, an evil coming upon someone, the one that they love, or or an illness over overtaking them, and and mourn over that. But at the same time, they can have this kind of faith that is able to see through the tears to see the empty tomb or to, uh, you know, as in, or to see Lazarus, you know, in the embrace of the Lord. 
so we we aren't against Stoics. We mourn or we experience the evils of this world with faith and in and through faith that sees that which is greater. So I don't I don't want to give the sense, and I don't think this is what John is trying to communicate, that somehow we do not feel anything on a natural level. I think what it's telling us what how faith transforms our experience of reality itself. Everything that we experience as human beings now has been transformed in and through uh, the incarnation and in and through the Paschal mystery. All of it has taken on new meaning and has been is permeated with the, the life and love uh, of Christ. Even that which is the most, uh, even those things which are the most difficult things of life illness, death itself, to the point that Paul could say, you know, death, where is thy sting? You know, ultimately, the sting of it has been removed, not that we don't experience the pain of it, but that we know that it's been overcome by, by life itself. Jacob's Ladder, the movie, all I saw were demons torturing and tearing at me, but then I looked again, and they were angels freeing me from the attachments of life. Uh, yeah, I think this is part of what John communicates here that again, God at times allows us to see certain things in order that we might come to know that freedom, that uh, we might experience that fear for a moment in order that we might cling to him. He who, who has become the servant of the Lord will fear his master alone. And he who does not yet fear him is often afraid of his own shadow. And so, you know, to fear the one thing that we should fear, uh, the one who holds within our hands, within his hands, our, our life and our destiny, our dignity. You know, to have our fear appropriately directed uh, and to the thought of losing hold of that love ourselves, then fr frees us from all other fears. And, uh, but John says, the, again, the moment that we lo lose that, then we become afraid of our own shadows. Ashley writes, although Ashley writes, paragraph nine is reminding me of the recent gospel reading of Jesus calling Peter to walk on the water. Gen water generally represents chaos in scripture, something unformed or in turmoil. And I think also if we believe wholeheartedly that we are made in the image of God and the longer we spend in his presence, the more we are revealed as ourselves in that identity. It is almost as though overcoming temporal and animalistic fear is like passing through raging waters to be meeked by the grace of God so that even our fears are rightly ordered. Wow, beautifully put. Uh, so to be meek, to be made meek. And, uh, uh, and that's interesting, you know, meekness is not weakness. You know, I think it is what you're, you say here, it's rightly ordered uh, virtue. 
uh, rightly ordered in, in so in so far that it becomes uh, a virtue uh, that we ha have those things directed to where they should be. Oh, there's another part of it, a second part. Uh, if then we are filled with this grace to have such a disposition as to be unmoving and freed from other fears, then we are always being filled. St. Bernard of Clairvaux says, the man who is wise, therefore, will see his life as more like a reservoir than a canal. The canal simultaneously pours out what it receives. The reservoir retains the water till it is filled, then discharges the overflow without loss to its health. Today, there are many in the church who act like the canals. The reservoirs are too far too rare. You too must learn to await this fullness before pouring out your gifts. Do not try to be more generous than God. Wow. Interesting. Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, you always have wonderful comments, Ashley. Uh, not to make you vainglorious, but uh, they, they really are extraordinary. Uh, and certainly this one here that it captures in a beautiful way from a western saint bernard of Claveau, who's a wonderful writer you know the nature of this disposition uh your, your first part again i find you know very striking this idea of walking through the raging waters and that that has an impact upon us that uh, we come become meek and again the illusion is washed away and the reality presents itself to us fully. And, you know, Peter in walking upon the water loses sight of Christ. And uh, again, he's overcome by, you know, the chaos that you described uh, that often is associated with water. And it comes up again and again in the, in the gospel uh, you know, is something that is threatening. And Christ, again, becomes the standard for us. He's asleep in the, in the bow of the boat. Uh, and there's such a peace within him uh, that it angers his own apostles. How can you sleep when we are about to drown? And uh, again, they, they don't understand who it is that they have with them. That despite the fact that he had you know, multiplied the loaves for 5,000, and they'd seen him perform all these miracles, that they have the Lord, again, the Lord of life, the one through whom all things have been made in the boat with them. They are fearful of what is, is going to happen to them. And so he allows them to be brought to, to this brink of almost despair, of being overwhelmed by their fear in order to free them from it. And when I was doing a little bit of reading about that passage, it's in, this, in the gospel, it says the, the storm came up uh, in the, the, the story about the, the storm where he, he calms it, uh, uh, or when, he's, uh, when he comes to them walking on the water, that the storm comes up in the evening and it, I think it was like the, what is it, the third watch uh, that Matthew lays out, which is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So they could have been struggling for 10 to 12 hours on this stormy sea. Uh, so brought to, to this point of physical, emotional, and then finally spiritual exhaustion, 
uh, and uh, in order that they might truly understand who he is and uh, why it is that they should cling to him, but that they also might see the fear within them, the kind of cowardice that John is speaking of here. That we, as easily as they do, lose sight of who's in the boat with us on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, when we receive the Lord into our very being, into our very heart, through the Holy Eucharist, through the gift of the Spirit, the life of prayer, and yet we can be so easily overcome by the fears of life. Uh, Ambrose writes, let's see here, no need to read this aloud, Father. <laughs> okay, okay, I won't. It's a personal, little personal. Thanks for catching me there. I almost write, I'm glad you read, don't read this aloud because I almost did. So let's see, where are we here? Number 12, in the presence of an invisible spirit, the body becomes afraid, but in the presence of an angel, the soul of, a hum, of the humble is filled with joy. Therefore, when we recognize the presence from the effect, let us quickly hasten to prayer, for our good guardian has come to pray with us. So when we experience fear, anxiety we we know what kind of spirit it is there that's present but when we experience joy or peace we also are to know what spirit is there with us it's our guardian angel the spirit of anxiety the spirit of fear does not come from from god uh and so uh it's at that point that john tells us hasten to pray because our guardian has come to protect us. He who has a conquered cowardice has clearly dedicated his life and soul to God. So has held back nothing. And so fears the loss of nothing. You know, I, those prayers are so easy for us to say at times. God I offer you everything. Uh, take all that I am and possess. You know, I, I give it to you. And uh, we could say that at one moment. Uh, and yet when we are confronted uh, with certain realities in our, our life, then we become fearful. You know, when all is going well, it's easy to say those words. I think when, you know, when we've, when we are in jeopardy or seem to be in jeopardy, then it's harder to say those with uh, a, a real faith. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, as we go through this text, there's not one part of human experience that seems to escape the, the Desert Father's attention. And uh, I, again, I think one of the comforting things is that to be able to describe this, human experience means they went through it. It's not like none of them ever experienced, you know, anxiety or fear. They knew it well, and they knew it well enough to say, listen, this doesn't come about imme immediately, any more than we can overcome the spirit of gluttony, that it 
you know, as our faith deepens, as we nourish ourselves more and more upon the love of God, the grace of God, the freer we become. And the more we begin to lose that fear within our, within our life. Uh, Laura Lee writes, Father, just a reminder to check out Protecting Bale. I definitely will. Uh, he runs Father Freeman, too. Excellent writer. Anybody have any comments about this? Or, you know, it's, it's a hard little, uh, little step. And so anything that doesn't sit right or anything that you would want to talk to, talk about. Uh, Ambrose writes, this one I can read. The intro to the hours of prayer is always good when feeling afraid. God, come to my assistance. Oh, Lord, make haste to help me. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, John Cassian, in his conferences, uh, puts before us this prayer from the Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 115. Uh, but we have in, we have incorporated it into the divine office that we we use this part of the psalm uh, to start uh, each of the hours of the office. Oh God, come to my assistance! Oh Lord, make haste to help me! And uh, but Cassian holds this up as like the Jesus prayer that if we are to say this, Oh God, come to my assistance! Oh Lord, make haste to help me! Then gradually. All those things that that af affect us or afflict us are overcome. That uh, this again, this constant remembrance of God and calling upon His assistance is what brings us to freedom. A couple of co other comments here. The only thing I stumble uh, on is that cowardice seems to mean fear or anxiety, but I tend to think of it a little differently need to sit with this for a while. Yes, and I think that's a good idea, you know, to sit with it and to reread it. And I, I know we tried, or I tried perhaps poorly to capture that, that, you know, there is on this natural level things that we experience when we encounter uh, threat within this life. Uh, but there's, you know, the grace touches everything that is part of our human experience, including fear and including anxiety, and tr it transforms it or frees us from it. That the grace of God can be so powerful in our life that the unimaginable or what seems improbable or impossible to us that we could be free from anxiety can emerge. Uh, don't angels usually open with be not afraid when they make an appearance? I always thought that'd be a little scary to encounter in an awe-inspiring awe way. Right, it's probably why they, they do announce themselves in a, in a particular way. Uh, because uh, quite naturally, I think we would be fearful of it. Uh, do the Eastern Fathers, Sister Barbara writes, call upon the blood of Jesus to protect for as protection or as dissolution of fears. Uh, you know, undoubtedly, I think the, the blood shed upon the cross and what takes place for us in the Paschal Mystery is what free, frees us from, from fear. Uh, that, 
when we draw before our, our minds the Paschal mystery and the depth of the love and the compassion that is shown there, that God withholds nothing from us, that this becomes the most powerful source of our freedom, freedom from anxiety. And, uh, and this is part of the reason that, you know, within our churches, we, we keep the crucifix before our eyes. We don't sanitize, uh, sanitize things, you know, whether it's within iconography or within the West in crucifixes or statues, uh, that we do this not out of a sense of, of being morbid, but, it, but it, because it brings before us the reality that brings us the greatest freedom, not only from our sin, uh, but the, the consequences of that sin, part of, part of which would be anxiety. What do we need to fear when we have such a God who's willing to, to give everything for us? Uh, Audrey writes, had great fears this morning, went to the sacrifice of the mass and still great fears for health, sat by Jesus uh, in the tabernacle and begged his help for over, over and over. Finally, by 30 minutes, fear's all gone. Yes, to, to linger in prayer. Uh, you know, anxiety and fear has this uh, effect of making us turn in on ourselves. And part of that is being protective and we want to try to control it or to stop it in one form or another. And so to be vulnerable at those moments takes a great deal of faith to, to be vulnerable before God, not to turn inward, but to turn outward precisely to the one who can free us from it. And so at times we have to compel ourselves to linger, to linger long, as you describe here, until it passes. And I would extend that to also our struggle with temptations in general. Then whenever we're besieged to linger long with the Lord and to continue to cry out to him until the assault ceases. And often, again, we will turn to other things or turn inward or give ourselves over uh, to the fear or the temptation. Uh, Rachel writes, our parish is in a rough neighborhood. Two contrasting experiences. One, a while back during a parish event that ran late, I entered chapel forgetting the roughness of the neighborhood. Upon leaving, I realized that no other person except our Lord present in the Blessed Sacrament was with me. Right, <laughs> that you're alone, but not alone. And, uh, and that can free one uh, from anxiety. Uh, Ambrose writes, Psalm 46 is good meditation for this too. Absolutely. Yet recently, uh, Rachel continues, the same situation, I entered the chapel alone, and even with reading this reading in mind, but it took all my strength not to look over my shoulder at the small sm sound in the dark. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's an interesting thing, that we can be surrounded by other individuals and still uh, have this kind of feeling. And this is what John says, that one can become, uh, oh, you're right, there was no one in the chapel, just the noise, right? Uh, that we can become fearful of our own shadow. And uh, Lawrence writes, 
uh, Leva Merikakis, excellent translator or uh, scholar of the scripture. Um, if you haven't read it, his commentary on Matthew, four volumes that are enormous, but it makes great spiritual reading and Lexio Divina. Uh, he uh, has a remarkable reflection on the calming of the sea. Just one sentence, the savior is redeeming his disciples by making his profound serenity as God and have at the same space as their frantic despair. Beautiful. A perfect example of how this guy is extraordinary. You know, profound intellect, but even deeper spirituality that pulls you really to the heart of the text. You could tell that he, he gained his insight mostly on his knees than from books. Uh, Ambrose writes out the psalm for us, God is for us a refuge and strength, a helper close at hand and to this time of distress. So we shall not fear though the earth should rock, though the mountains fall into the depths of the sea, even though waters rage and foam, even though the mountains be shaken by its waves. Beautiful, the Abbey Psalter. Or uh, Isaiah, the Lord is an eternal rock. I always love that one, an everlasting rock. I, I've often found strength in that when everything seems to you know, be falling apart around you. Uh, to have that in mind as well. So wonderful comments tonight. And again, you know, I know this is a hard one. And uh, because again, anxiety is ubiquitous. And I think we often struggle with it from the, the earliest times of our life, fears tied to all different kinds of things. And so to have it brought out like this and be cast in terms of the spiritual life and how grace and our relationship with God should touch it as well uh, can be uh, unsettling, you know, it, because it often becomes that familiar friend in our life. We know it well, and it always seems to accompany us no matter where we go. So the idea of being free from it uh, uh, can seem impossible. I am so distraught that I almost didn't log on tonight. Thank you, Father, and everyone for your prayers. I don't feel so overwhelmed now. I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, the fathers are comforting, but for one reason, and I think for, because they point us to Christ and, uh, and so well. And so thank you again for all of your comments here tonight, questions, and again, feel free uh, to bring them up next time or to write me about them too if there's something more on your mind about them okay so when we close there i'm sorry we're over time tonight uh, but we'll close as always with our father in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.